Please turn back in your Bible to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. I'll go ahead and give you the basic structure of the sermon, and then we'll, we'll, we'll work through it in, in pieces. I've titled the sermon, Paul's Love for the Churches. There are numerous churches involved in this passage, Paul's Love for the Churches. And I have four points, and you can sort of, it's almost a fill-in-the-blank with, with, my, with my words. So number one, Paul is concerned about the health of the churches. Number two, Paul is concerned about the physical needs of the churches. Number three, Paul is concerned about the unity of the churches. And number four, Paul is concerned about the edification of the churches. So health, number one. Number two, physical needs. Number three, unity. And number four, edification. Now, I'm going to read through these first six verses, and we've already read them at the beginning of the service. I'm going to use the map that we have seen before a few times to sort of, again, orient where we are in this particular passage. So, I remember Paul, when this passage begins, is in the city of Ephesus, so I'll circle that right here, if you can see it right there. And let's listen, because a lot happens in a short time. Look at uh, 20 verse 1. After the uproar ceased, that was the riot in Ephesus from last Sunday, after the uproar ceased... Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Just stop here. Paul is the one that was the victim of this riot, and what does he do? He gathers the saints and encourages them. This is the kind of man Paul is. So Paul nearly dies in a riot. He gathers the saints, and he exhorts and encourages them in this moment, and then he's planning to head to Macedonia. Now, you remember, Macedonia is sort of this region up here in red, where Thessalonica, Philippi, and Berea are located. So, Paul's about to head up north to that region. Verse 2, when he had gone through those regions, that would be Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So, obviously, Corinth and Athens here, the next circle there, that's where Greece is in, in Achaia, where Corinth is the primary church. Verse 3, there, that is in Corinth, in Greece, there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, so if you look again at the map, he's about to leave Corinth, and he's going to head all the way to Syria, which is right up here, but he's not able to do that. He is stopped in his tracks, and because they're, they're a group of the Jewish leaders are leading people to try to have Paul killed. Maybe they're trying to steal some of the money he has. We'll talk about that. And so he decides, instead of sailing to Syria, he decides to take a return journey by foot. Uh, look at the end of verse 3. He decided to return through Macedonia. So you see, instead of doing that, We'll switch to blue color here. He decides to return up through Macedonia like that. So, he's going to go backwards, reverse course of where he was going to go. Verse 4, we have a lot of names. Sopater, the Berean. So, remember Berea, if I can uh, use uh, red again here. Berea is right down here in this area right there. Uh, that's where he's from. Uh, son of Purus accompanied him. One of the Thessalonians, so Thessalonia, Thessalonica right there, uh, Aristarchus and Secundus. Gaius of Derby, you'll remember Derby is way over here. This is one of the Galatian churches where Timothy was also from uh, Lystra right next door, who he's mentioned next, Timothy. And the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, so Asians would be people probably from Ephesus, or at least from those churches there. 
And that is the whole list of the people with Paul. Verse 5, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Now, do you see the word us just reappeared? It's the first time we've heard us or we since chapter 16. This would include who is now with Paul? Luke, the author of Luke and Acts. And the last time we saw Luke, he was at Philippi. So, he showed up at Troas. He traveled with Paul to Philippi. Remember the earthquake at night and all that stuff? After Paul leaves Philippi, the we does not leave with Paul. So, Luke no doubt stayed in Philippi, and the next time we hear about Luke, guess where he is? He's still in Philippi. So, it makes perfect sense. Luke stayed in Philippi in the intervening years helping that church. Maybe he did other things as well. When Paul comes back to Philippi, Luke meets back up with the group, and now it's we moving on from Philippi, verse 6. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, that's the Passover. And in five days we came to them at Troas, the port city there on the map, where we stayed for seven days. So the story real quick here, I'm, I'm going to get somewhere with all this, but uh, the, I'll circle again here, Troas, you see in blue right there, that's where Eutychus and the story of the guy falling out of the window takes place, is there in Troas at the port city. All right, we've gotten all that. I hope that can kind of give you orientation for what's happening in today's passage, because now I want to get into the real meat of what is going on here. It may not look like much, these first three verses of the chapter, and I will grant you, Luke uh, is leaving out a lot of what's going on. Luke is selective. He can't tell you everything that happens. Every time Paul stops somewhere, it would be, Acts would be, you know, the world would not contain all the volumes, right? Like they said about John's gospel, if you recorded everything. So Luke doesn't give us all the details, but I am going to bring in Paul's other letters that were written around the same time. Just so you know, in verse 2, Paul writes 2 Corinthians on his way to Greece. So, Greece is where Corinth is, Paul is north of Greece and Macedonia, and he writes 2 Corinthians to prepare them for his coming to see them, because his last visit with the Corinthians went really badly, and he does not want to have another very painful visit with them. So, he writes 2 Corinthians in verse 2, and then look at verse 3. When he gets to Greece or Corinth, verse 3, there he spent three months. And ladies and gentlemen, he was busy, because during those three months, he wrote the book of Romans. If Mr. Edgar could… Head, I mean, we're not at Westminster. I can call him Jerry. I'm used to high school. Mr. Edgar. If Jerry could head back to one place in church history, I think he might go to these three months in Corinth and sit next to Paul as Paul pinned the letter to the Romans, which he sends off from the city of Corinth during that three-month period. So, a lot is happening, and we get a lot of books like First and Second Corinthians and Romans to help us understand much that happens. So, title of the sermon, Paul's Love for the Churches. The first point of the sermon, which is going to take us some time to work through, is Paul's concern, Paul is concerned about the health of the churches. Paul is concerned about the health of the churches. So you can hold your spot in Acts. We will come back in a few minutes, Lord willing, and let's turn to 1 Corinthians 16. To your right to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now, I, I just, I'm going to try my best to explain the relationship here with Paul and the Corinthian church. I'll just ask you to, to try to follow along as I, as I hope this makes some sense. As we talk about this, there's a lot of detail I'm trying to sort of condense into an understandable form. So, Paul made, uh, Paul made three visits that we know of to the city of Corinth, three visits. The first one is in Acts chapter 18 when he went there to evangelize them the first time. Remember, he was discouraged. Paul, Jesus showed up on a vision, said, don't be afraid. Don't, no one's going to attack you to harm you. I have many in this city who are my people. Preach on. And so, what does, what does Paul do? He preaches for a year and a half and sees many conversions in the city of Corinth. He had a good relationship at the beginning with the Corinthians. 
Uh, Priscilla and Aquila were there. He was making tents. He was also uh, helping working uh, with this new church and was seeing a lot of fruit. And then Paul eventually makes his way to the city of Ephesus, and somewhere along the way during his three years at Ephesus, when he's preaching, remember, in the hall of Tyrannus for those two years, during that time, he gets a, a news, comes across that little Aegean Sea from Corinth across to Ephesus. Uh, some people from, called Chloe's people, we don't know details, show up. 1 Corinthians 1 mentions Chloe's people. They come to Paul and they say, Paul, there is some bad news back home at the Corinthian church. Paul is all ears. What is going on? Well, the church has started to divide. We know Apollos. We love Apollos. He's shown up. He started preaching, which is great. He loves the Lord. But some people started identifying with him. They liked his preaching style. He was such a powerful rhetorician. He was, such, he was so good with words and whatever. People identify with, I'm with Apollos. Other people are saying that they want your name on their t-shirt. They was I'm with Paul. And they start dividing against the Apollos people. Other people have seen Peter because Peter came at some point and they say, we're with Cephas. We're with Peter. And some people are saying that they're with Christ, which although that's the right answer, may have been the most pretentious of all of them. Oh, yeah, well, I'm with Jesus. You know, that may have been that group, okay, which is, I don't know how that is. So, th th there's this massive division in the Corinthian church, and Paul finds out they're acting like they're, they're, they're carnal in their Christian faith. They're not acting like mature Christians. And so, Paul has written one letter to them already. They've responded, so, so listen to this, they've responded to Paul's first letter. In 1 Corinthians 5, he says, I previously wrote to you. So, 1 Corinthians, I previously wrote. That was a letter before 1 Corinthians. They responded to Paul's letter with another letter, with a bunch of questions about sexual morality and meat sacrifice to idols and all these different questions, which Paul's answering in 1 Corinthians. But Paul also gets word from Chloe's people that it's not so good in Corinth. There's a lot of division and things going on. When Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he is addressing all the problems at Corinth. He loves this church. And so, just like parents who will discipline rebellious children because they love them, not because they don't, right? He who spares the rod hates his son. Paul, as a loving father in this sense, does not spare the rod, but he speaks correction. And in 1 Corinthians, the first four chapters, he corrects division in the church. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, he corrects sexual immorality and questions about divorce and all those kinds of things in 5, 6, and 7. Then he gets into chapters uh, 9, 10, excuse me, 8, 9, and 10, he deals with meat sacrifice to idols. What are we supposed to think about that? In chapter, uh, chapters 11 and following, 11 to 14, he deals with all the conflicts that happen in the church service. One person goes hungry during communion, and another person gets drunk. That's first, that's at Corinth, okay? So, Paul's addressing all that. Some people are even starting to question whether or not resurrection is true, physical resurrection. Paul's going, what? And he addresses that in chapter 15. So, that's all in 1 Corinthians, and Paul is hoping that this will settle some things. So, he sends the letter off. Now, this is the part. He's still in Ephesus, Paul is. He's waiting to hear back from his letter. Have you ever had moments where you send correspondence to someone about a very critical issue and you desperately hope it goes a certain way and you know it's the right way, but you're not sure how a person will respond and it eats you up with anxiety? You're just consumed, just, come on, come on, what, what, what are they going to do? What are they going to say to this? Well, Paul is wondering in Ephesus what's going to happen. And uh, Paul decides that he will make a quick visit over to Corinth. Maybe not very much pre-announced. He makes a little trip while he's Ephesus. He makes a little trip across the Aegean Sea right there over to Corinth to see what's happening, to try to address some things. Perhaps Timothy had come back with bad news this time. And when Paul gets there, things take a turn for the worse. We don't get a lot of details. All we know is it was called a painful visit. That's all Paul calls it, a painful visit in 2 Corinthians. And so, Paul goes there, and apparently some people in the church were starting to believe these false teachers called super-apostles. Man, that's, 
<laughs> it's quite a name to give yourself. We are the super apostles. Paul is a, is a junior varsity apostle. We're, we're, we're the real thing. That's what Paul is. So they're, they're starting making fun of the apostle Paul. And they say he doesn't really know what he's talking about here. We are the real apostles. So how, how do we know that we're the authentic apostles? Because we don't suffer all the time like Paul does. See, we have a pretty good life. God is prospering and blessing us. And Paul, look at him. He's in prison. He's shipwrecked. He's whipped. He's beaten. This is not a true apostle of God. Would God really let one of his true apostles experience that kind of death? And so they look at us. And so they call themselves these super apostles, and they begin to discredit Paul. And apparently when Paul went to Corinth in this, in this mysterious visit that we only hear bits about in his letters, some people in the church, some vocal minority group, was, rejecting, was beginning to reject Paul and accept these false apostles. This is why in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I am afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, you too may be led astray from a sincere devotion of Christ. For Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light, and his workmen come dressed as, what, servants of righteousness. But they're really servants of Satan. But they look really good on the outside, but they're not really good. And so Paul's having to combat this in that letter. And when Paul heads back to Ephesus, he, he had apparently told the Corinthians that this was his plan. So if you can look back at the screen, he had apparently told them that he was going to, well, I'll show you that he did tell them this. He was going to head from Ephesus. He was going to head from Ephesus to Corinth, and then he was going to make his way up through Macedonia, and he was going to head back on a return journey to Corinth again. And so he's going to make how many trips to Corinth? Two more trips to Corinth in this short period of time. That would make four total trips. But here's what Paul starts thinking. He says, I think instead of making this, this, this next trip, I'm going to send a letter instead. Why? Because if he shows up and they have not repented of what's happening. We're talking sexual morality, division, and these believing false teachers. If they, if they have not repented of that when I get there, it is going to be an ugly scene. And Paul says, I would rather give them time to prepare for me physically coming. So I'm going to not make another painful visit. I'm going to send them a grievous letter. Okay? I'm going to send them a grievous letter. In fact, I'm getting ahead, but just flip to the very next page, the 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, to see, to see this. It's a little complicated to put together all the verses would take me a long time because there's so many pieces to put together. I'll just show you a few glimpses of what's going on here. So look with me at verse 15. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you may have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you, the Corinthians, on my way to Macedonia, that's the northern cities, and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. You see, that's what I just drew on the map, right? I was going to come to you guys first, go north to Macedonia, come back, see you again, give you a double blessing of grace, and then I was going to leave and go to Judea. But instead, he cancels the opening trip. He cha Paul changed his mind. I'm not going to go there. I'm instead, I'm going to go north first and then come visit you. And I'm only going to visit you one more time at this point. And the Corinthians take this as Paul being fickle, Paul making decisions according to the flesh. He's just flaking out. He's just, I don't want to do it. I'm just changing my mind. He's acting in the flesh. And so they use this to accuse Paul. And look at verse 70. Paul has to defend himself. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us the Spirit, His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. 
Are you starting to hear that? If I came twice in this trip, if I came right away, it could be an ugly scene because if you haven't repented, I'm going to come, he'll say, with a rod of discipline. And he says, it would be an ugly scene. So instead, I'm going to, I was going to send you a letter first rather than come personally. Verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in the faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Do you see there's been two painful visits? One just before, and now he goes, I don't want to make another one. I'm going to send a painful letter rather than a painful visit. Verse 2, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did. This is the letter between 1st and 2nd Corinthians that we no longer have in God's sovereignty. And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, are you feeling this? Paul says, I'm sending you, I sent you a painful letter so that you might hear a rebuke, you might be humbled, you might repent, get things in order, and when I finally come visit you, it will be for joy, not for grieving. I, I want this to be a rejoicing time, not a grieving time. Now, some of those in the church who had stood up against Paul, Paul had them put under church discipline and removed from the church. That's verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, this would be the false teacher or those following them, if, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. Now, you see, if someone is following false teaching, who does it hurt? Not just Paul and that person, it hurts the whole congregation. Verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you to know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, you see, here's the, here's the piece of good news that Paul's about to explain. Had this person who had been excommunicated by majority vote, right, the punishment by the majority… This is, by the way, this is why we do our church government the way we do. We have a vote on these kinds of things because the punishment's not inflicted by the elders. It's inflicted by the majority. Who's the majority? The majority of the Corinthian members. They, they voted, apparently. They had some kind of way of voting, and the majority excommunicated or punished this guy. He was removed from the church. And this guy also, guess what? He repented. This guy repented of the false teaching, and what did he do? He, Paul says, welcome him back in. Forgive him. Restore him. Don't let him be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Satan, we're not unaware of Satan's devices. He has repented. Bring him back in to full standing and full forgiveness in the church. Paul says, I myself forgive this man. Now, look back at our map. Paul's made his way uh, from Ephesus up north uh, to Troas, and when he got to the port city of Troas, here's what the condition was. Paul had not written 2 Corinthians. He had just written the painful letter, and he sent it with Titus. You've heard of Titus. He sent with Titus down to Corinth the painful letter. And he's waiting to hear back from Titus, did they, did they respond well? Did they not respond well to my painful letter of rebuke? And Paul is inwardly being tormented by this. You, you remember when, when Paul lists his sufferings? He says, whipped, shipwrecked, all those. And he says, and additionally, I have on me what? The daily burden for all the churches which may have been the deepest pain he experienced was when churches strayed from the Lord. And here, Paul is waiting to find out. So if you've ever been there, 
Someone you love is straying away, and you're trying to win them back, and you're waiting to hear whether or not they are repenting, whether or not they are listening, whether or not they are obeying or not, and you're, you're, just, you're just tormented by it, and you're waiting to hear. That's where Paul's at in Troas, and he's hoping to meet Titus there, but Titus is not there. Look at verse 12. All this is taking place, by the way, in two verses in Acts 20. Verse 12, when I came to Troas, that's that port city, to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now, do you see? Paul gets to the church in Troas where later he'll preach and Eutychus will fall out of the window. This is before all that. He's in Troas and they are begging Paul to stay and preach. And a wide open door of ministry is right in front of Paul. And Paul says, no, I'm leaving. Why? He is so bothered by the Corinthians. He is so unsure where the Corinthians are that he says, I know there's an open door, but I'm leaving. I've got to find Titus and I've got to find out whether they repented at my grievous letter. So Paul says he was, his spirit was not at rest. So he left and went across the Aegean Sea to Philippi, to Macedonia. Look at verse 14. This is where the whole thing turns and all the clouds part and the sunshine comes out. Verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Okay? And then Paul interrupts his thought and talks theology for several chapters before getting back to what's happening. Classic Paul. Okay, I love this. So, Paul's in the middle of his story. I got to Macedonia. Good news. What is it, Paul? Let's talk about the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. Let's talk about new birth in Christ, new creation. Let's talk about reconciliation. Let's talk about, the, let's talk about substitutionary atonement in chapter 5. Let's talk, and he, okay, he gets through all, and he comes all the way back. Guess when he gets back to the story? He left it in chapter 2, gets back in chapter 7. So, theology for chapters three, four, five, six, now get to seven. You'll see he picks up right where he left off. So where was he at in the, at the last part of the story? He was in Macedonia and something good happened, and we don't know what it is. Now we get to chapter seven, he picks right back up with Macedonia. Verse five of chapter seven, for even when we came into, we're back in Macedonia, and we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by His coming, but also by the comfort with which He was comforted by you, Corinthians, as He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. Have they repented of the false teaching, and have they turned back to Paul? Yes. It's, it's I mean, I won't get anything specific here, but I just, not long ago, there was a person I knew who I was concerned about where they were spiritually, and I got news that told me that they were in a much better place than I had feared. And it made me weep because there's no better news that you can find out than someone you hadn't heard from in a while, and you're very concerned. Have they just walked away from it all? Have they just left church, left Jesus, left Christ? Have they just walked away? And then you find out, no, they have not. There's confirmation they, they have not. They're actually not doing, they're not doing poorly spiritually. They're actually doing better than you expected. Th that's what Paul's feeling, feeling, not about one person, about the entire church he spent almost two years investing in there in Corinth. And Titus comes back beaming with good news. Let me continue. Verse 8, for even if… I made you grieve with my letter. I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
For see what earnestness this godly grief produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. That punishment, by the way, that Paul's praising them for is the punishment he just mentioned, the punishment by the majority. It was excommunicating the false teacher. That's the thing he's praising them for. They, they, they turned from the false teacher, punished him as a majority, and they turned back to Paul showing repentance, middle of verse 11. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of one, the one who did the wrong, that'd be the false teacher, nor the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, that would be Paul himself, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made about, to him about you, I was not put to shame." But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Do you see Paul's concern for the health of the churches? So this is the application point here. And listen, I am as guilty on this as anybody when I hear Paul. Do we have this kind of love for this church and for other healthy churches? In other words, does the spiritual well-being of those we love burden us like it did Paul? Paul puts the burden of the saints next to being whipped with lashes 39 times on five occasions. He puts those next to each other in the list. To me, I would be like, one seems a little worse than the other. But for Paul, his love was so intense for his people that he was an agony until they were brought back to faith and repentance. Do we have a similar kind of passion and love for the health of God's people? Let me just say one more thing. Flip to chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians. The, the last few chapters, 10, 11, 12, 13, Paul is dealing with perhaps a small remnant left in the church who are still on the fence about which teachers to believe. So Paul does say some still severe things at the end, perhaps to a minority in the church. Look at uh, chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in Him, but in dealing with you, we will live with Him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And on, on he goes there. All right, let me move to my second point. Uh, the, Paul is concerned about the physical needs of the churches. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 16, where we were a moment ago. 1 Corinthians 16, and you will see here Paul's concern. So, Paul is gathering uh, financial aid from all these Gentile churches, 
all across this map to take them back, as you know, to Jerusalem, where poor Christians are in severe suffering. There's two reasons for this at least. Number one, he cares about the physical needs of others, especially other believers. Secondly, Paul is interested in what? He wants to create a glue, a a unity between the Gentile churches and the Jewish church, because the Jewish church is suspicious in some ways of the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are suspicious some of the Jews. And so, to create, to get rid of hostility and create unity, he wants the Gentiles to give to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. So, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints in Jerusalem, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you all also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and to store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Well, it, it did seem advisable because Paul did accompany them. But you see here, on the first day of the week, I'm going to mention this again in just a moment, but the first day of the week is when they would gather for worship. The Sunday is the first day of the week. Sabbath was the last day of the week, that's Saturday, and the first day of the week was the Lord's Day or Sunday. And so, there's a little indication, why does Paul tell all the… listen to this, why would Paul tell all the churches in Galatia and the church in Corinth that on the first day of the week you gather your money together? Because that's when they gathered together as saints. That's when the churches gathered. It was on the first day of the week, on Sunday, and so that's when they would lay aside money, almost like taking an offering. Well, it was taking an offering, and they would lay aside the money, and they would, they would accumulate it. So when Paul arrived, it wasn't a… he didn't have to try to force them to give money. He, they'd already collected something that they could give to the saints in Jerusalem. We won't turn there now for the sake of time, but 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is, is two full chapters about this giving to the saints there. Um, look at look at um, you can I, I won't go there now for the sake of time you can you, you can look at this on your own time Romans fifteen twenty four to thirty three would also be another passage on that so we'll move to point number three the unity Paul's concerned about the unity of the churches the unity of the churches. Uh, that, uh, I think I did this out of order. I already said this part. Okay? The unity of the churches is the Galatians, and the, the, uh, the, the Jewish churches and the Gentile churches being one in Christ. He mentions that explicitly in Romans 15, 27, and we'll move on now to our fourth point where I want to spend a little more time. So, our four, fourth point is Paul's concerned about the edification of the churches. So, let's go back to the book of Acts chapter 20, and we will pick up at verse 6. So, Acts 20 verse 6. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to Troas. So we're back in that port city where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, does that sound familiar? Same phrase, right? So this is a Sunday. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, this is a Sunday service, uh, Paul talked with them intending to depart uh, on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, number one, this is interesting because there's a debate about this. You know, Jewish, the Jewish reckoning was the day starts at night, evening and morning the first day. So, you could argue that Sunday started on Saturday night and went till Sunday night, and that therefore they were gathered together on late Saturday night. That's possible. But the commentators assume that Luke is actually using the Roman way of measuring days, not the Jewish way. And if that's true, which I think it is, then Paul is using midnight to, Luke's using midnight to midnight just like we would, in which case they are gathered together on a Sunday night. It doesn't make a 
really any difference. But they're gathered together, I think, on a Sunday evening. We're not the only people to have a non-Sunday morning church service. <laughs> they're gathered together on a Sunday evening. They have a dinner church service. And Paul's sermon starts around 7 or 8 and goes till midnight. Uh, look at verse, uh, verse uh, 7 again. He, he goes on till midnight with his speech. And uh, everybody can, everyone who's ever done public speaking can feel a little bit better about themselves because even Paul put someone to sleep, not just put them to sleep, they died. Okay, so let's look at verse 8 of what happens here. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Now, why would, why would Luke include that detail? Well, imagine this. It's a, it's a warm evening, and we've got these small little rooms with windows in them, and they're high up in the air, and uh, you've got these lamps burning. People have brought their lamps perhaps from their own homes as they gather, and the lamp is burning maybe olive oil, something along those lines, and you've got this kind of stuffy, muggy room. It's warm. It's hot. It's muggy. The, the air is not very good with all these lamps burning for four or five or six hours so far. And so this young man, Eutychus, who is maybe between the ages of people say eight and 14, right around that age, uh, he, uh, called a young man, he wants to get some fresh air, understandable. Paul's going on for hour number four of the sermon, so we're gonna, he kind of makes his way over to the window, and he sits up near the window to try to get some fresh air, and, and the warmth of the evening and the talking Paul is going on for literally, this sermon is literally at least four hours long at this point. He's going to go longer afterwards. So four hours of this preaching, maybe five hours of preaching, and this kid is, you know, he's, he's trying his best. It's the apostle Paul, but this kid is, is starting to fall. So he, he starts to slump his head over. You know, you know, you, we've all had this in class or in school somewhere, you know, you're, you're kind of, or maybe in a Bible study, you, you're kind of, you have one of those days, you know, you're, you start, you think, you know, I'll close my eyes uh, for just a little bit, and I'll, 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 I'll get away with it. I'll open back up in just a few seconds. It'll be fine. So, you kind of, you, you open it back, and then, then you, you close, and then the head, and you, you ever lose the head, and it, oh, yes, yes, that's a great point. You, know, you try to get back into what's happening at that point. So, Eutychus is having one of those moments, and suddenly his eyes close, his head goes down, and he doesn't shoot back up. He is out, and in fact, he falls into a real deep sleep sitting in this window, and as he is slumped in this window, he, his, his center of gravity goes over the edge of the window, and he falls. And he falls, what, 25 feet, maybe 30 feet, something like that. He falls down to the ground. And uh, now, I know the story is, is kind of an amazing story, and it, and it ends so well that we all can kind of smile at this. But let's, let's stop for one moment here. This really did happen, and no one knew Paul was going to raise him from the dead. So the parents of this kid are in the room. This 13-year-old or this 8-year-old or this 10-year-old boy, young man, is sitting there at the window. He falls 25 or 30 feet and hits the ground dead. The parents scream. The meeting comes to a complete stop. Everyone is mortified. They race down the stairs. What is going to be his condition? Is he okay? Is he alive? Is he conscious? They run down the stairs. When they get to him, they pick him up, and he is dead. He, he, he is dead. The parents come down. Can you imagine this moment? No one knows what's about to happen. It's like Lazarus. Mary and Martha do not know what's about to happen. No one is expecting this. No one ever expects a resuscitation or resurrection in that sense. So they all come down. Everyone is weeping and no doubt screaming and panic. And Paul comes down the stairs and he does what Elijah did in 1 Kings 17 and what Elisha did in 2 Kings chapter 4 is he leans over the, the boy who had died, stretching out over him. And what happens? The Holy Spirit brings new life. I want to be tech note, uh, take, a, take a footnote here. It's not quite right to call these things resurrections in the Bible, although it is bringing someone back to life. A resurrection in biblical language is to come back to life never to die again. 
the resurrection on the last day. You get a new body and you never die. Jesus is resurrected. We are not resurrected. One day we will be resurrected, never to die again. Lazarus was not resurrected. He was brought back to life. He was resuscitated, but he wasn't raised never to die again, just like Tabitha and, and Talitha and different people who were raised. Similarly here, there's no doubt he, he then lived and died again, but he, did, he was raised back to life at this moment. Uh, let me read verse 8 and 9 again. Verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed." Now, I just love this. Paul, I mean, this, this unbelievably shocking thing. I mean, it, I, I, some of you were here when, when Ben and Rachel Bowen were, were members of our church uh, a number of years ago, and about a year into our church's existence, if you don't know the story, I'll just tell it extremely briefly. They were sitting right about right here in a pew, and I was preaching, and I looked over and saw them, and they were looking at me, and I kept looking around the room. When I looked back, Rachel uh, was unconscious, and I could immediately tell that something was horribly wrong. We stopped the entire service. She was laid on the ground without a pulse. Uh, several people here, Elizabeth uh, Long, Rebecca Rents, Ben Cunningham, and some others who are all medical professionals, they came forward in the service. They started doing chest compressions and CPR on her, trying to get gum that was stuck out of the back of her throat, out of her throat. And they did that for 9 to 10, maybe 11 minutes before the ambulance got here. She had no pulse. The ambulance got here. They took her to the ambulance. They shocked her. She came back to life and was completely fine. When she, she came back with complete consciousness, and they took her to the hospital, and then she had some kind of pacemaker or something like that put in, and, and she's doing well today. She was 23 years old. They've been married for one year when that happened. So, for those of you who are here, a number of you were here, we know what it is like to have something like that interrupt, something so shocking, something so unimaginable happen. So, everyone who was here the day that that happened with, with Rachel Bowen, everyone will remember that for the rest of your life, right? If you were here, you will remember that for the rest of your life. That, that is an indelible memory in your mind. Well, similarly, uh, Luke was no doubt an eyewitness. He was here with them, right? He just came with them. Luke is here. A bunch of these people are here. This would have been permanently etched into their memory for the rest of their days, and they would tell the story over and over and over of what the Lord did through the Apostle Paul. Now, at, at the end, of, we, we, we did the right thing here. At the end of all that, when we found out she was well, we, Ian got up and we sang, I think, How Great Is Our God, which was one of the most incredible things, and we prayed and we thanked God, and we finally left after a, quite a while of trying to figure out what had happened, and we, we left, and some of us got to see her that evening in the hospital, and, and we were just incredibly thankful to God. And I think that was the right thing to do. Paul raises him and says, all right, back to the sermon. <laughs> and Paul, Paul goes back up stick. Can you imagine? So it's like 12 o'clock, this 8-year-old, 10-year-old falls out the window, dies. Paul goes down, does an Elijah, Elisha, raises him from the dead, brings him back upstairs. All right, next verse. And Paul, Paul goes from, let's say, 12.20, he picks the sermon back up. He goes until the sun comes up. That's just astonishing. Look, look, look at verse 11. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, so perhaps this is communion, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. That is, that is again, an understatement. Not a little comforted, the parents were, that, his, that the son was alive. But Paul, I mean, this, when I say here, Paul was all about, he was concerned about the edification of the church. In Ephesus, he spent 3,000 hours, perhaps, teaching the Bible in two years. 3,000 hours of Bible teaching in two years. I can hear someone say, Paul, We've heard enough theology. Let's go do some other things. Paul says, no, no, you haven't. Let's keep going. And here, Paul has his last night with the church at Troas. And what does he do? 
He starts the service in, in the evening around dinner time. He preaches from dinner time till midnight. Someone falls asleep and dies. He raises them, brings them back to the room, and he preaches until sunrise. So from sundown until sunup, Paul is preaching, dialoguing, taking questions, explaining the Bible, teaching theology, perhaps 10 hours long, maybe nine hours in one evening of Bible teaching. So, so, so I, w- I want to say this. None of us in this room, n- not a single one of us in this room has a sufficient understanding of what the Bible teaches. None of us has enough doctrine. None of us has enough theology. None of us has learned enough of the Bible. We will never come to a point where we have exhausted what is inexhaustible in this book. You will never run out of your need for food and oxygen, and you will never run out of your need for, for Bible teaching and Bible study and discussions about the Bible and questions about the Bible and studies about the Bible. And what does that word mean? Let's look up how, where that word's used somewhere else. I mean, the, the lifeblood the, the life of, the, of the Christian church is God's Word. It is the bread of life that Christ communicates through that. We, we commune with God. We meet with God. We know God. I mean, imagine you fall in love with someone and you say, I love them. And well, what's, well what do you know about them? Not much, but I love them. Uh, it's like, well, that's not really love, is it? Uh, I heard one pastor say, you know, I, I love my, my wife's beauty. I think it was like, I love my wife's beautiful green eyes and brown hair. And then someone, he's like, well, actually my wife has blue eyes and blonde hair. So that would not be good if you said to your wife, I love your green eyes and brown hair. If she's like, uh, have you seen me before? That's not what I look like. If we are going to worship God for who He is, we should worship God for who He is which is the only way we know Him is by a deep, diligent love of this book. And and what I love about our church, and I know we're getting close to the Eutychus part in the sermon. We're getting long. I know, I know. We're about to have… We can all sit in our windows in just a second. But before I knock a Eutychus over right now, balcony people beware. Don't get too close to the edge. Uh, We don't want to have that happen. But before I finish the sermon, I I so… When the Holy Spirit regenerates someone's heart and life, the hunger for God's Word, although it is not the same every day, and it waxes and wanes, yes, it goes up and down, but the real persistent love of God's Word cannot be extinguished for a regenerate believer. You will never come to a point where you say, I know it enough, I'm moving on. And if you ever do come to that point, I am, I am concerned about where you are spiritually, that you could say, I, I don't need that food anymore. I don't need that water of life anymore. So we are devoted to, to God's Word in this church because we believe deeply that this is uh, how God uh, speaks with us. And let me wrap up with this final point, verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for uh, Asos, or I don't know how to say that, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending by himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asus, we took him on board and went to Miletus. Now, if, if you look up here, I don't even know if I can draw this. Let me switch to a different map so you can see this. Okay, we're back. It's the same place. So there's Troas right here. If I can get this to work. Troas is right here. Asus is right here. So there's a 20-mile stretch of land where that blue mark is, 20-mile stretch of land. Paul could have gotten on the boat. I mean, he didn't sleep last night. He chooses… Just… If this is real life… We, we did a 10-hour Bible study until sunrise. That's great. Now let's go sleep on the boat, right? Like go to the port, get on the boat, and then nap while you go around that little bit there. And when you get to Asos or whatever, that's fine. Paul sends all the other guys on the boat, and he walks 20 miles from Troas to Asos. And there's no reason given in the text, but I think this guess from a lot of people think this. I think this is likely the right answer. We're not told 
But you know how when Paul either leaves a city or arrives at a city, people come out to greet him or they'll go with him the first part of the journey? You know, it's like when, you're, when you leave someone's house, they might go out in the driveway to wave or they, you know, that, that kind of thing. Often when Paul left the city walking, people would walk with him a certain distance and then they would go back home, right, to like send him off. I think likely, what other explanation is there? Why would Paul spend that extra day walking 20 miles? Because he wanted to keep talking with them about Scripture. So people from trust who are able walked with Paul all the way to the port of Asos, probably, and Paul walked with them and continued teaching and discipling them all the way till he got on the boat and had to finally leave. I think that is likely what Paul is doing there. So Paul was concerned with the edification of uh, the, the church. All right, I'm going I'm to wrap up now. Um, I do hope that as we leave that we have a real hunger for this book and for solid Christian books about this book that can show us what is there and can build us up and edify us. And so let's take a moment here, bow your heads, just take a moment, anything in this sermon that has gotten to your conscience or has comforted you or in any way confronted you, just take a moment to speak with the Lord and then I will pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for all the ways that it is so obviously demonstrated that the people in this room that uh, we know and love do really care about the health of this church and of other believers. There is a real care for the physical needs of those uh, who need things to be taken care of, different ways in which those are met and, and different ways that service is rendered. I thank you for the unity that you have given to our church. Uh, thank you for just the like-mindedness around the gospel and around Scripture, and also thank you, God, for so many chances that we have with family groups and small groups and different kinds of things to meet and to discuss the things of eternal significance and eternal consequence. And God, I pray you'd be with us this week as we go about uh, our life, that you would use us, that you would help us to be um, edifying and helpful to others, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.